The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com. Good morning. Glad to see you all here this morning. Um, If you're not familiar with this face, uh, I'm Jim Buckle. I'm one of the elders here at the bridge, and I'm filling in for Rob today since he and Bethany had a chance to take a break, and uh, they'll be back next week. We're going to jump right in. Um, The passage we're kicking off from today is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can either join me there, there's a Bible in in the seats in front of you if you have your own, or it'll be on the screen as well. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they... So we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we praise your holy name. We thank you for bringing us together in this place this morning. To be able to worship you together as brothers and sisters, and to hear from your word. Father, I pray that you would guard and guide my words, that there would be no foolishness, that everything I say would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, as well as giving us ears to hear what you would say to us, God, through your word. So we pray that you would be glorified in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little bit of background of this letter from Paul. What was his purpose in writing this letter? Well, Paul had spent over 18 months uh, in Corinth, founding the church and ministering, and during which time it it flourished. We can read about it in Acts 18, 8 to 10. But three years had passed, and things were beginning to fall apart. He had received a report from Chloe's household about divisions and moral and ethical problems. He had received a letter from the church 
from them, asking for guidance on several issues they were facing. So up to this point in his letter, chapters 1 through 14, Paul addressed divisions in the church, he addressed moral and ethical issues, he addressed marriage and divorce, uh, food sacrifice to idols, propriety in the worship service, and spiritual gifts and orderly worship, which he covered in chapters 12 and 14, with the center point of that being chapter 13, which many of us are familiar with as the love chapter, where he talks about love being more important than all of it. That brings us to the text we read today. Um, so the first two verses, verses 1 and 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul wraps up this letter to the Corinthians by addressing something of the utmost importance to him, the integrity of the gospel. In verse 3 he says, For I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I also received. This is number one, numeral uno. You have to get this right. Everything else is meaningless if you get this wrong. What does Paul mean when he says, what I also received? Well, he talks about that in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we can read about that in Acts 9, 1-19. And then in verses 3-11 to that we read earlier, Paul goes on from here to talk at length about the necessity of and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because some were infiltrating the church with a message denying Jesus' resurrection and or resurrection in general. But that is kind of another sermon in and of itself. We're not going to go there today. The point today that we're trying to make is Paul considers the gospel message as of first importance. Based on the rest of Scripture, I don't think Jesus would argue with him. Paul's point, and I believe scriptures, is that the gospel is the main thing. So what is this gospel of first importance, the main thing? Well, the Greek word used for gospel is euangelion. It means the good news of the kingdom of God and salvation through Christ. So Paul describes it a little bit in the, in the following verses. In verse 3, he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. What does that mean? In John 1.45, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What's he talking about? 
If we go to Isaiah 53, we see some of what was prophesied. I'm going to read verses 3 through 6, but I encourage you, if you get time later, read all of 52 and 53. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Paul means by in accordance with the Scriptures. The Scriptures foretold of Christ and what He would do. Verse 4 says, He was buried. He was dead. Not mostly dead, all dead. The centurion confirmed it to Pilate. We read that in Mark 15, 44-45. John's account tells us they pierced his side and blood and water came out medically indicating death. They wrapped his body with burial spices, myrrh and aloes. I don't think they would have done that if he was just passed out. Paul continues in verse 4, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Again, there's that phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures. This was foretold in the, in the Old Testament writings. Josh McDowell, in his book, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, writes this, Throughout the New Testament, the apostles appealed to two areas of the life of Jesus of Nazareth to establish his Messiahship. One was the resurrection, and the other was fulfilled messianic prophecy. The Old Testament, written over a 1,000-year period, contains nearly 300 references to the coming Messiah. All of these were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and they establish a solid confirmation of his credentials as the Messiah. And the New Testament writers knew this and appreciated this. We read in Acts chapter 13, verses 26 to 27. This is Paul speaking to the, the people in Antioch. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham... And those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as, it, as also it is written in the second psalm, quote, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
unquote. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, quote, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, unquote. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, quote, you will not let your holy one see corruption, unquote. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So in this little talk, Paul references Psalm 2, verse 7, Isaiah 55, 3, and Psalm 16, 10. I want to point out that when Paul uses the word corruption, it's not like we think of corruption today, uh, you know, being some evil intents and, and in government and whatnot. It's in the archaic use of the word, it meant decay, decomposition, putrefaction, which is the rotting of a body or other organic matter. Um, so then Paul continues in verses 5 to 8. He appeared to Cephas, which was Peter, of course, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most who are still alive. What's the significance of that? Well, when 500 people see something at one time, you can rule out personal hallucination. He appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus. Appeared to all the apostles. Finally, he appeared to Paul. Basically, he appeared to enough people that it could easily be fact-checked. And the fact that so many people observed the risen Christ confirmed his resurrection, which confirmed the prophecies, which confirmed the truth of God's eternal plan of salvation. Why is this important? Because this is the main thing. This is the whole message of the Bible. Genesis 3 points to Revelation 22. From before time began, God has had a plan to reconcile fallen, rebellious man to himself by the ultimate sacrifice, the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Paul writes in Galatians 1, 3-5, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He writes in Romans 5, 1-2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. Apart from Christ and the truth of this gospel, nothing else matters. And that's where our eyes need to be set and fixed upon. A little graphic to illustrate this. It's hand-drawn, forgive me. That's where I should be set. Eternity with God. The gospel is what gets us there. Notice the smile. The message of the gospel is so important and so powerful 
that the enemy is constantly trying to either twist or warp the message of the gospel being preached. That's what Paul is trying to guard against here in his letter to the Corinthians. Or else he's trying to distract us or deceive us with other things. Our enemy, the devil, desperately wants to distract us and get our eyes off of the main thing. And one of the primary ways he likes to do this is to divide us and get us arguing with one another. We certainly see that very clearly in our society in general today. We get divided over politics, left, right, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, far left, far right, progressives, deplorables, etc. We get divided over race, ethnicity, skin color. I love how Senator John Kennedy, who's always got something to say from Louisiana, brilliantly pointed out at CPAC just this last week that souls have no color. And in his usual humor, followed that with, to a bear, we all taste like chicken. (laughs) We get divided over our occupation. Are we in the tech industry? Are we blue collar? Are we white collar? Are we no collar? We get separated by generations. We've got the builders, the boomers, the Gen X, the Gen Y, or millennials, the Gen Z. I thought at Gen Z, that must be a sign we're at the end times, right? Where else can you go? Well, apparently they decided to loop it, now we're back at Gen A. We get divided in between introverts and extroverts. We get divided by religion. Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, New Age, you name it. Seems like we're always being pigeonholed into some sort of label or a box. Even within just the Christian church, we get segregated into Catholic, Protestant. Even within Protestant, we've got Lutheran, Methodist, Evangelical, Pentecostal, non-denominational, etc. And even then, within those subdivisions, we have subdivisions or basically things to argue about. Calvinist, Arminian, end times views, known as eschatology, amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism, dispensationalism. Our churches are traditional, progressive, contemporary, liturgical. We get divided over worship styles and the songs we like to worship to or with. We get divided over how we view the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, especially regarding views on spiritual gifts, continuationist, cessationist. If the enemy can keep us arguing and divided over these distractions, which usually have to do with minor issues, the main thing, the gospel, gets neglected. And that's a tragedy. Because without the gospel, people will spend an eternity in hell separated from God. So this is kind of what happens. We get our eyes off of the main, the main thing, looking at the end, and we get off on these side tangents. The whole Calvinist versus Arminian argument, social issues, worship music and styles, 
spiritual gifts or the expression thereof, how's that supposed to look, taken to extremes, all of these things get us in the weeds. And some can lead to deception. Now, I, I do want to point out briefly, you see the dotted lines? These, these things aren't necessarily supposed to be non-existent. And, and they can actually help work and keep us on the main thing. Um, and some of these topics that distract or divide us in the church, really when you, when you consider it, they're the fuzzier ones when it comes to the clarity in Scripture. Some things, like the gospel, for example, are very clear. Very little room for argument. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Systematically, that means looking at all of Scripture, Scripture spells out the gospel pretty clearly. It doesn't leave us a lot of room to argue about it. Some things are less clear. And Scripture leaves some room for interpretation and therefore differences of opinion. Eschatology is one example. Now, Rob just preached through the book of Revelation. Countless times he told us, there are other views. This is the one I'm clinging to. He acknowledged. People have other views, and that's okay, because Scripture leaves a little bit of room for that. Worship styles and music. This one's really fuzzy, and people have argued over that for years. Calvinism, Arminianism, spiritual gifts and the exercise thereof. Now, this, this last one <clears throat> seems to be the hot topic of the day here at the bridge. And therefore, if you would allow me to go down a brief rabbit trail, um, as I was thinking about this, I, I thought back to the, the bridge when it started. We had our first official public gathering in February of 2006. That means we're 17 years old. We just turned 17, and we're in those awkward late adolescent years. And sometimes there's a bit of turmoil and angst in that stage of life as we try to figure out who we're going to be as adults. We've been growing in our faith, and we've been maturing as believers. And so when it comes to issues regarding the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, and more specifically spiritual gifts, we're like, oh, what's this? What do I do with this now? And we're trying to figure out what God wants to teach us about his gifts and what it's supposed to look like in the believer's life. But we want to figure it out according to God's plan and not man's. And so there's been a bit more of an interest in, perhaps perceived as more of a focus on spiritual gifts in the last year or two. Maybe you've noticed. Rob preached on the gifts a while ago while he was going through this very letter. He, he preached through, all through 1 Corinthians. As elders, we've recently created a brief statement on spiritual gifts and are working on a more exhaustive paper regarding them. But it seems like all of a sudden, there's a plethora of ideas, experiences, and opinions about this subject being shared, discussed, and sometimes even argued over. And unfortunately, it's in our nature to take everything to extremes. 
no less so the, with this idea of spiritual gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit in general. We start hearing terms like continuationist and cessationist being thrown around because we're looking for a neat little box to put it in. Many of us aren't even sure what those terms really mean. And they, they can mean slightly different things to different people. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones had to say about it. He says, We are all creatures of extremes. It is most difficult to avoid going either to one extreme or the other. It always seems to be easier to be at an extreme, does it not? It seems clear-cut, as people say. You know where you are. You are either here or there. But that is not always right, especially when your extreme has gone beyond the Scripture or when you have been driven to an extreme in a reaction against another extreme. I also want to note, as kind of in the, the graphic there, it is in these extremes that we are most susceptible to deception and counterfeits. Specifically in matters of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, Lloyd-Jones writes, Let us be careful. Let us be careful, lest we go to an excess of riot and carnality in the name of the Spirit, but let us be equally careful, lest we quench the Spirit and rob ourselves of something that God in Christ intends for us. But the real point here is that it's not the main thing. If our focus and energy are consumed in this matter or any of the other ones, our eyes are not on the main thing. I think, I think this is what we look like when we're chasing after and arguing about all these other things. have to believe this is how we look to God <laughs> when we're chasing after all these other things. Now, there's two ways to look at this analogy. And the first way is, let's just take this whole chasing after spiritual gifts um, as a specific analogy. You notice the cat is chasing the effect and not the source. Now, I believe, so that you don't get the wrong impression, I believe if we pursue the source, the effects will follow. The other way to look at this video is in a broader sense. Talking about any of the distractions that we've talked about, the enemy is the one shining, steering the laser pointer to get our attention off of Jesus and the gospel getting us arguing and divided. Absolutely not 
what Jesus wants us to be doing. Let us stop and think. What did Jesus, our Lord, command us to do as his followers? Love God, all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He said in Matthew 22, 37, 38, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Two, he commanded us to love each other, love other believers. In John 15, 12, Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And three, make disciples, love non-believers. He said in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those are the three commands of Jesus. Here's an interesting catch, though. We can't do any of these things in our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit to accomplish these things in us. We need to abide in Jesus. He said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do some things? No, you can do nothing. We cannot produce fruit. We can only bear it by him working in us. We need to keep our eyes fixed on him, not the shiny things, the distractions. We need to focus on the main thing, the gospel. All of this other stuff is far less important. Just for example, considering just this issue of spiritual gifts and what that's supposed to look like, how much of the New Testament do you think is dedicated to this topic of spiritual gifts? Try about 0.5% compared to how much is centered on the integrity and truth of the gospel. How much of the Old Testament talks about gifts compared to prophecy concerning Christ and the gospel? How much time did Jesus spend talking about spiritual gifts? He had a few things to say. One of them's in Matthew chapter 7, but I'll let you look at that later. In fact, the overall resounding message of the entire Bible is the gospel. Paul writes in Romans 1, 1 to 6, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Everything in Scripture points to man's need for a Savior and how God provided that Savior. The ultimate goal is Revelation 21 and 22, the new earth, the new heaven, 
the new Jerusalem. Existing in God's very presence. Eternity with God. Without the gospel, people will not be there. The reality is, there will be only sheep and goats. It's, it's, it's like binary, ones and zeros. And it's terrifyingly simple. You either have a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or you don't. In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 33, these are the words of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. In verse 34, He says, Then the king will say to those on His right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And in verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These are the words of Jesus himself. This should sober us right up. When we get to heaven, it's not going to look like Grand Central Station. There won't be a multitude of doors and banners over each door saying, Protestants here, Catholics this way, Evangelicals over here, Calvinists only. Arminians here, if you choose. People, real people, are going to spend eternity in only one of two conditions. Completely separated from God in eternal torment or together with God in eternal joy. That's why our focus needs to be on the main thing. It has eternal consequences. Do we really want to stand before the Lord one day and when he asks, what did you do with the gift I gave you? The big gift, the gospel, salvation, not not a spiritual gift. The greatest gift a person can ever have. Uh, Well, I went in an argument with my Calvinist friend and I got him to cave on one of the five points. Well, I convinced my neighbor to give to a Christian charity. Okay. But what did you do with the gospel? I memorized three books of the Bible. Well, I'm pretty sure I figured out the exact timeline of the things mentioned in the book of Revelation. I spoke in tongues more than anyone else in my community group. Okay. But what did you do with the gospel? the one thing, the only thing that can actually and eternally change people's lives. 
Now, don't shut out the Holy Spirit because none of it happens without him. And he does give us gifts to use for his glory and to help in this process of bringing people to Christ. But remember, Jesus' direct commands. This is our Lord, his direct commands. Love God. Love other believers. And love non-believers enough to tell them the good news about what Jesus has done for them. That they can know personally the God who created them and that they can have peace. Eternal peace in Him. I believe God showed me a little illustration about this um, a couple weeks ago as I was preparing. I had uh, neglected feeding our birds for probably a couple of weeks. So all the feeders were empty. There was not a bird in sight. You walk outside, you don't hear anything. They're not even hanging around. I thought, well, okay, I better... I think we just had a cold spell or something, and they're probably hungry. So I went out, and I put a bunch of sunflower seeds in, in both feeders. And I'm not exaggerating. I think it was less than five minutes. I looked out again, and there was a, a zillion birds all over, in the trees, chirping away. And, and it wasn't just one kind of bird. It wasn't just chickadees. It was like four or five different kinds of birds. And I thought, well, how, how did they? How? What, they got some kind of code? How did they know that that was? But isn't that what we should be like with the gospel? Like, come here, you got to see this. This is awesome. We can have hope and life through Jesus. We can have forgiveness of sins. And we should be telling everybody. It wasn't, it wasn't just one bird. It was like, come on, come one and all. That's what we should be like. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, we thank you. Um, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the truth of the gospel, which is truly the only thing that gives us hope. You are the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus. We believe that. We trust you in that. And we thank you, God, that as your children, you give us your Holy Spirit to be in us, to fill us, to guide us. And we want to do everything to bring glory to your name. And we want to love you well. And we want to love each other well. And we want to love our neighbors and coworkers and all those who don't know you yet enough to tell them about you. So help us to do that, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping Him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.